course, we look to uh, Scripture as our guide as we ask the Lord to teach us the way in which to live. And so we're continuing uh, this morning in the little letter of First uh, John, which I hope you've uh, become uh, more familiar during these past several weeks. Uh, we're approaching the end of uh, this little book, and we'll be looking today at uh, verses 6 uh, through 12 as we uh, consider his word for us this morning. We're, uh, we're going to notice, uh, those of you who use the King James or New King James, you'll notice a, a difference in verse uh, 7 from uh, what we read in the ESV. There are a few words added in the King James and the New King James that are not going to be found in the ESV, and that's because the, the uh, Greek text that the... Uh, King James is based upon uh, is not based on the most ancient manuscripts that we have available now. Today we've been blessed with literally thousands of uh, Greek manuscripts. The uh, person who translated the Greek text behind the King James had uh, seven fragments. We now have, uh, I think last count was 5,800 uh, portions of the Greek uh, New Testament going back uh, many, many years uh, beyond what was available at the time the King James Version was written. So, so you'll see some words missing if you're following the King James, but that is because the uh, ESV and other translations are trying to be as close to the original autographs, the original writings, as possible. So our text this morning is First uh, John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now we've noticed as we've gone through this uh, little letter that that it's uh, it's really a flow of thought in the mind of John. This isn't an organized essay or speech that he's following an outline. He's really speaking out of his heart, and so we see a sort of a flow to the thought that that we want to note uh, for our text this morning. Our text really grows out of the uh, rhetorical question that you see there in verse 5, if you want to glance back to verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, now he's going to, in a sense, answer that rhetorical question in our text. He, he's going to uh, first focus on emphasizing uh, Jesus, the one in whom the believer trusts. 
I believe in, in that question in verse 5. And then he's going he's gonna to focus on the Spirit who gives the testimony that the believer affirms concerning Christ. And then thirdly in our text, is John's thoughts going to be led to his assurance that in Jesus, God gives us eternal life. And that's the means whereby we overcome the world. The means whereby we're victorious over all his enemies and our enemies. Are you living a victorious life? Are you experiencing what John is talking about here? This overcoming life. This, this conquering life. Uh, that's what he wants to encourage uh, in your heart today. So, so let's... Uh, look at our text then. It opens with, uh, well, a little bit challenging uh, challenging verse. Some people consider this the, the hardest verse to interpret out of, out of the whole letter. Look at it again there in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, now his language here is clearly very precise. Okay, he, he's He's saying something very precisely and concisely. And it's clear also that he expects his, his original readers to know exactly what he's talking about. It's not quite so clear to us. So we might want to take a minute here to see if we can really hone in on what he's trying to communicate with these literary images of water and blood here. But before we look at, at those images, notice the verb here. Notice the verb came. It's in the past tense, right? And again, Jesus is the, is the subject to go with that verb. Jesus is mentioned in the previous verse, verse 5. So Jesus came. Now don't skim over that because that's important. It's in the past tense on purpose. Obviously, since it's using the past tense, it's talking about an historical occurrence something that happened in time and space in human history. Never forget that your faith is a historical faith. It is rooted on what has happened in the real world, this world, in time and space. Okay, there are other religions that don't depend on any particular events in human history. Okay, they're based on ideas or thoughts or concepts. Christianity, rightly understood, stands or falls on the historicity of the gospel that we preach. John says, Jesus came. And that's central to the gospel. That gospel that he's been giving us from the beginning, the very opening lines of, of the gospel, of, of this letter. So he came by water and by blood. Now, now that has perplexed people for years, and there have been various debates. But I think that the best interpretation, the closest one, is one of the most ancient. It goes all the way back to Tertullian, the uh, ancient Christian apologist uh, of the early church years. And Tertullian read this, and he saw in these images of water and blood, the water and the blood, and notice how Paul, 
John emphasizes it here, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. He says here we see references to the historical events, see the connection with the verb came, the historical events of Jesus' baptism and his death. His baptism and his crucifixion, it's easy to see that connection with the water because Jesus is baptized in water. It's perhaps a little bit harder to see that connection with his crucifixion, but clearly, clearly based not only on what John has said, but where we, what we read elsewhere in scripture, that emphasis on the blood is affirming that Jesus' death is not just an ordinary death, but it is an atoning death. It is a death that makes atonement for sin, that turns aside, remember John said earlier in this letter, it turns aside the wrath of God. Okay, so, so the blood becomes the symbol, the, the image for what Jesus has done in the flesh, done in human history. Now, why is John emphasizing that? Well, well it's very possible that he is speaking against a heresy that is already beginning to, to surface during this time. And that is the heresy that Jesus was a mere human being. And, and, and he, he was born a mere human being. He died a human being. Now, in between, he, he had a spiritual visitation. And, and so, for instance, some heretics taught that, that Christ, the divine personage, came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left Jesus because of his crucifixion. They didn't want to entertain the idea that Jesus was fully God and man throughout his entire life. So you can see why John words it this way. He says Jesus came as the Christ. He's attached to that title. Remember, that's a title, the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus came. He was the Christ when he was baptized and when he died, he's affirming that throughout his life, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because unless that's true, unless that fact is true, you will die in your sins. It is only by virtue of the fact that Jesus is fully human that he can identify with you as he did in his baptism. Remember John's baptism, John the baptizer's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. He lived a perfectly righteous life. So why is he being baptized? In fact, it perplexed John the Baptist. Remember, he said, you ought to be baptizing me, not me, you. Remember, he says that to Jesus. Why is Jesus baptized then? Well, because he's identifying in both his life and his death with sinners. And so he's baptized along with sinners to convey that idea. And the Spirit himself bears witness to that. We're going to see a lot about witness and testimony in this passage. The Spirit witnesses to that, remember, in his baptism because the Spirit descends and God the Father speaks at his baptism. You have the entire Trinity there at Jesus' baptism affirming what God is doing. And so, God, Jesus has to be fully human in order to identify with you. 
and be able to take your sins upon himself, but he must be fully God in order to accomplish an atonement for those sins. The death of a mere human being is not enough to make atonement for sin. Even if we somehow entertain the idea that Jesus was a perfect person, his merely human life could not atone for the sins of all his people and all those sins. But because he is fully God, his sacrifice, that sacrifice that he himself makes of himself as his blood is shed, that sacrifice, because it is the sacrifice of one who is fully God, makes full and complete atonement for the sins of his people. That's why John is emphasizing this. Okay? Our faith stands or falls on Christ being fully God and fully human. Well, how do we know that? Well, he goes on to talk about that. Look at the next verse. Or actually, the, the last part of verse 6 here. The Spirit is the one who testifies. There's that key word, witness or testify, uh, that occurs uh, repeatedly during in this passage. You probably noticed how often he repeats it. And actually repeats it even more than, than shows up in the English. Because a couple of times he says, this is the witness that is witnessed. And so to simplify it in English, most translations don't repeat it like that. But this is a key thought. The Spirit is the one who testifies. Now, now, how does he do that? Well, first of all, we should note that, that his, his witness is completely reliable. The Spirit is the truth. You can bank on this. The testimony of other human beings is not fully trustworthy. Even when, even when people try to be, truthful and try to be faithful to the truth. They make mistakes. The Spirit makes no such mistakes. He makes no errors in his testimony. And so we see frequently throughout uh, the New Testament, Jesus pointing his people to the Holy Spirit for, for their witness. He did this even before he was crucified. He said to his disciples in John 15, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, see where John got that language, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. He's saying this to the disciples. He's right there in front of the disciples, right? Might, we might be tempted to think, well, well, they don't need the Spirit as a witness. They, they've got Jesus right in front of them. But Jesus obviously is telling them, you need this witness. You will need this witness after my crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And so, so continually, you see believers referencing this, telling that this has happened. So, for instance, uh, Peter says in Acts Chapter 5, when they're being challenged by the religious leaders and told not to preach Christ anymore. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, 
whom God has given to those who obey him. See what, what Peter's saying there, our witness depends on the witness of the Spirit. This, of course, is a fulfillment of, of, of Jesus' promise to them that he gave to them earlier in John. Now, we could look at a number of other passages that, that emphasize that same thing, but, but, but notice something more specific in, uh, in verse 6 there. The Spirit is the one who testifies. There's a present tense there, right? Not the Spirit did testify. I mean, he did testify at Jesus' baptism, and he did testify to the apostles, to the apostolic witness that we're reading today. But he, I think John's using the present tense on purpose here because the Spirit continues to testify to his people. He continues to be the witness that you can rely upon. And he elaborates that then on that then in, in verse 7. For there are three that testify, and moving into eight, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. J John, in all of his writings, tends to really like to use symbolic numbers. And the number three and the number seven are, are, are frequently used in uh, his gospel and in his letters and in the book of Revelation. And he may have in mind here the... The, the background of the Jewish court where two or three eyewitnesses who perfectly agreed with one another were necessary for a just verdict. Uh, it wasn't even enough that you had two or three eyewitnesses. Their testimony had to be identical. You remember that, he, that when, when they were uh, falsely putting Jesus on trial, that was a problem they had. They couldn't come up with two or three witnesses that could agree because, of course, they were telling lies, and it's hard to get, get the lies straight. So it could be that, that John is using the number three here to underscore the fact that this witness that, that we receive through the Spirit is totally reliable. Again, you can count on it. So he personifies, in a sense, the images of the water and the blood, the baptism of Christ and the death of Christ, the Spirit testifies through them. And if we receive the testimony, go on to verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is much greater. If we will rely upon what some other human being says, how much more should we rely upon what God says, and specifically notice that this is the Father testifying there in verse 9. This is the testimony of God which he has borne concerning his Son. So the Spirit's witness to you as believers is the Father's witness. He is conveying his witness to Jesus through the Spirit. And so it's completely reliable. And, and there's another step in this witness. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God, whoever places their faith in the Son of God, who has been witness to them, has the testimony in himself. Well, when, when you are born again, when you are made alive in Christ, when God gives you the gift of faith, that happens, all that happens through the work of the Spirit in you. 
And so that testimony becomes not just something outside you, it becomes something inside you as the Spirit lives in you and witnesses to you the truth of the gospel. Do you catch that? This is the most wonderful bedrock for, for our assurance, isn't it? That the Spirit himself in believers testifies to the truth of the gospel. You can rely on this. You can count on this, John said. And in fact, not to count on it, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Remember, he used this kind of language earlier in the letter when he was saying, if, if anybody claims they don't have sin, they're not a sinner. They're, they're saying God's a liar. Well, here he's using the same language. If you don't believe the testimony of the Spirit of God the Father concerning the Son, then that's tantamount to saying God's lying. And so he's saying that there's an either-or here. You either accept it and believe it, or you're calling God a liar. And this is the testimony, verse 11. Here's his climax. Here's, here's where I think he wants us to be led in this passage. Here's the climax in verse 11. This is the testimony. What is it that this testimony concerning Jesus Christ does in your life? Well, it gives you life, right? That's what he's saying. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. God has made us alive in Christ. Of course, this is taught over and over again. John's mentioned it already in, in the letter, in fact, back in chapter 2. He said this is the promise that he, God made to us, eternal life. He said in John, 1 John 4, 9, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In fact, right at the very beginning of, of the letter, he says concerning Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the same language that you read in his gospel. Uh, John ch chapter 3, verses, verse 15, whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, may have eternal life. A little bit later in the same chapter, in John three thirty six, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus himself asserts in chapter 5, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I mean, we could go on and on with, with instances of this, but, but you, you get the point. Real life comes through Jesus Christ. So, so, so there's a very, very real sense in which right now, if you are a believer, you have physical life as well as spiritual life in Christ. Okay, it's, it's not that eternal life is something that you enjoy sometime after this life. Jesus says, in fact, the opposite. He says, I am come that they might have life. 
not that they will have life. And he said, I am come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It, literally what that text says is I've come so that they can have life in excess. Now, how do you have more life than you need? <laughs> That's is what he's saying. And, and, and so what does it mean to have that abundant life, to have that excess of life, to have that overflowing life? Well, it means, to go back to the rhetorical question John is asking or answering, it means you're victorious. It means you've overcome the world. It means you conquer in Jesus Christ. And notice the emphasis, of course, in Christ. Again, go back to the words of uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapter 16, verse 33. He says to his disciples, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Being victorious, overcoming, Jesus tells his disciples, is not about having an easy life. You're going to have tribulation. That's, that's pretty much the strongest word for trial, for difficulty, for hardship that can be found in, in the New Testament. You're going to have tribulation. But he says, take heart in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that tribulation, because I have overcome the world. I have been victorious over the world. His victory over sin and death is so certain at this point that he speaks of it in the past tense, even though chronologically he has yet to die. I've overcome the world. So, so you see the implication. If Christ has overcome the world and you are in Christ, then you have overcome the world. That's why... John can say earlier in this letter, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, they may well still have a lot of life ahead for them. But he's using the past tense here to tell them that it's assured. He repeats it in the next verse. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. How are you strong? Well, because the word of God abides in you. It's resident in you. It's living in you. And you have overcome the evil one. He, he tells the, the uh, readers of his letter in chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. He's talking about the false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. Again, he's going right back to that idea that we are united with Christ. And so... He is in us through the Holy Spirit that he's already been talking about in our text. He is in us through his Holy Spirit. And so the one who is in you is greater than all the forces against you out there. What does this victorious life look like? How can we, how can we see this in practice in our lives? Well, I think uh, Romans 12 would be a really good place to, to go. And maybe you want to take time to read that entire chapter later on uh, this Lord's Day. But in Romans 12, he, he begins that chapter, Paul begins that chapter by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
the victorious life, the conquering life, begins with self-sacrifice and worship. The way down is the way up. The way down is the way up. Self-sacrifice, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice the emphasis there on this existence, your physical bodies. Picture them as a living sacrifice that you're presenting to God. That means what you say, what you do, okay, how you conduct yourself. That becomes a sacrifice. And in God's grace, he accepts that as holy and acceptable. Even though you're not perfect, okay, even though you are going to fall short and you are going to sin, but, but as you present your life, as a sacrifice to God in gratitude for what he has done for you. He views it as holy and acceptable and receives it as a spiritual worship. What does that then look like? Well, it means being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You think differently. Okay, as the truth of the word of God takes root in you, you think differently. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Paul says, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Of course, God primarily does that through his word. His will is revealed in his word. And so Paul is saying the spirit will, will work in you to understand and then to live by his word. That's what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so he goes on in that whole chapter to talk about the various ways that this is manifest. Uh, for instance, he says, you won't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but you'll think with sober judgment that the Spirit will give you wisdom, that most important kind of wisdom of being able to see yourself correctly, not have an exalted opinion of yourself, but understand who you are in Christ. The, the Spirit will, will provide you with gifts having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And the primary purpose of those gifts is to build up the body of Christ. The Spirit has given you certain abilities and gifts that will encourage and build up someone else in the faith. Someone in your own home, someone in the congregation, someone perhaps somewhere else. And again, what would that look like? Well, look at verse 9 of Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Remember how much John's talked about love in this letter. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another from, with brotherly affection. The Spirit will enable you to fulfill God's law that John's been talking about in his letter. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and, and seek to show hospitality. But look at the, the emphasis here on those daily means of reaching out and ministering to others. And in fact, encounter, encounter hardship differently. Verse 14 of Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. 
And how does Paul sum it all up at the end of the chapter? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you as believers. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is he who gives you the victory as you live in submission to him and for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, these words would be truth and life to us. Uh, we, we don't want a faith that is just head knowledge. We, we want these truths to, to sink into our hearts. We want them to incline our wills, uh, to, to guide our choices and our decisions, even from day to day. Uh, we, we thank you that you've promised to give us the victory. You've set before us heaven. You've set before us glory. Help us, Lord, to live as people who are headed for glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.